Hey! Welcome back to Archives of Fabella. Today we're continuing our journey through time with the third age of Fabella, the Age of Dynasties. Last time, with Mosa's quest, we were in the year 500 on Fabella, and today we're in the year 2247, so everyone we met last episode is super dead! Up front here, I want to say that I try to present each of these stories as their own separate entities. Everything you need to understand immediately what's going on in the story is there. There will be elements that have a deeper history than what's discussed in the story and expanded upon elsewhere. If you're confused, you're probably supposed to be confused. You know, if you're actually listening and stuff. I can't do anything about it if you're not paying attention. That's on you, bro. Sorry. That said, this is going to be one of those stories that I can see leading to a lot of questions. The Republic of Fantasia, where we'll start, is a kingdom with technology that is a little advanced for the time period. There's a reason for this. Without spoiling too much, I will tell you that this element of the story is explained in detail in the novel Dawn of Fabella. A lot of you will meet the character of Stephanie Lafleur for the first time here. She features heavily in Dawn of Fabella as well, and is also the main character of the companion novel, Herstory. Both of these novels are on sale on Amazon for ebook and paperback, so please check them out. This series is best in class bonkers, and this episode is a pretty good example of that. I'm Dylan Foley, and this is Archives of Abella. Beyond our world, there is love. Beyond our world, there is war. Beyond our world, there is life. Beyond our world, there is Fabella. Twenty-two forty-seven FY Fabella year equal to. 1754 BC Earth Year. In an age of dynasties, where the tribal colonies and settlements of old began to morph into kingdoms, two rising empires reigned supreme in the Fabellan continent of Cathara. One of them was Punt, first of the ancient empires to be ruled by twelve godlike people calling themselves the Titans. Opposing Punt was a Republic of Fantasia, founded by the Sentinels, whose sworn duty it was to rid Fabella of the Titan menace. Situated in South Cathara, where the weather was always a balmy 72 degrees, the Republic of Fantasia was a place out of time. Founding mother and first president, Stephanie Lafleur instituted a long list of new advancements in the foundation of this one-of-a-kind empire. By the end of her 12 years in power, Fantasia shined brightly as the first democratic republic in Fabella, and the national volleyball team wasn't too shabby either. Life in Fantasia was truly unique. The people of Fantasia lived in wigwams fashioned out of thatched grass and wood. Alex Chapel was where people all congregated to thank Lord Lucas for the gift of life. Speakers informed everyone on news from a raised stage in the center of the marketplace. The theater hosted such great classical plays as When Harry Met Sally and Rocky. The national anthem Somewhere Over the Rainbow was on the tip of everyone's tongues. Riders on airborne chariots pulled by pegasus and griffins made up an early air force. All these wonderful inventions brought by Stephanie Lafleur during her tenure gave her goblin presidential successor, Atphias Thinker, some very big shoes to fill. Thinker's election had been a contentious one, as Fantasia's philosopher class was continuously forced into conflict with their military commanders. The military called for a harsher, more orderly form of government, while the philosophers were committed to taking the time to evaluate the cause and effect of their actions. When the final votes were tallied, Goblin, a Thinker, was elected to the top post by a very slim margin. 
As he took his place in the Fantasian Palace, a fire stinker rejoiced in his new election to the commander-in-chief of this beautiful utopia. It was easy to forget that this empire was still open to danger. An ear-piercing scream in the middle of the night shattered the illusion that Fantasia would ever know a period of true peace. A fire stinker shot out of bed as fast as possible. He only had enough time to tie a linen kilt around his midsection and shove his feet into a pair of sandals before charging bare-chested down to the basement of the palace where the scream had come from. His advisors fell into step behind him as he thundered down the stone steps into a little-known section of the maze of underground catacombs. Thinker came to a sudden stop when he saw a bushy brown-haired woman in the middle of shutting something inside a small chest. She rose up to her full height of 5 foot 8 inches. The black robe around her shoulders billowed behind her. Three floating balls of yellow light bounced off the chrome exterior of her wand as she shoved it into her pockets. At her feet was the unbelievable sight of three soldiers paralyzed on the stone floor. Judging by their obsidian armor, these soldiers were from the rival empire of Punt, no doubt employed to undertake the secret mission by infiltrating the very heart of the Fantasian Republic. Were they here for me? Asked Aphias Thinker. No responded the bushy brown-haired woman before him. By the yellow lights floating around her casting their pigment on the woman's face, Thinker could clearly see that it was his legendary predecessor, Stephanie Lafleur. They were here for something else. Thinker followed Stephanie's midnight blue eyes to the small wooden chest she'd been fiddling with when he arrived. When he was elected to the post of president, Stephanie confessed to Thinker exactly where she'd come from and all of her adventures. She also told him that she'd hidden a relic in the catacombs of the palace in an area which until now remained undisturbed. Thinker had never seen the relic up close, but knew exactly what was in the chest. Stephanie said that the day would come when their enemies in the north would seek this treasured artifact. That day had come. Send for your daughter, commanded Stephanie Lefleur. Years ago, Thinker had engaged in an extramarital affair with a mermaid that one night led to the birth of Laura. As the illegitimate daughter of the Republic's second president, 16-year-old Laura was not welcome to engage in the benefits extended to her half-brothers. They, of course, were proud, noble, and brave goblin offspring of the president and his first lady. She was just an unfortunate souvenir from a night Thinker made it clear he'd rather forget. A dreadful accident never meant to breathe or have a beating heart. Merfolk were the most unique people in the world. No two of them were the same. Some grew squid tentacles for hair or sported colorful scales of a tropical fish. The typical merprison had two legs ending in a set of webbed feet. They could survive on land provided they remained soaking wet. But Laura was different. Laura had green hair which hung over her large eyes like a bed of seaweed. A set of fins flexed themselves on the side of her diamond-shaped head. She didn't have much of a nose. Gills kissed the air along her neck. Most of her athletic-toned body was a quiet aquamarine. Half-mermaids like Laura were allowed to walk on land much longer than the typical merperson, where her family on the rolling sea was allowed to walk above water as long as they stayed soaking wet. Laura could remain 
remain on dry land for a full day without having to soak her body again. Likewise, she could only survive underwater for the same period of time without having to surface. This trait was more like a curse than a gift. Laura couldn't find a home in the sea or on land. She was a mermaid who didn't belong anywhere. Her mother helped Laura build a home on the beach of her very own where the teenager could stay on alternating days and be safe from the outside world. So, once a day, Laura traveled between the land and sea, destined to straddle the two worlds forever and never fully find her home. The Merfolk Empire of Niflhel, where Laura's mother was from, built most of their structures out of stone and coral. Floors and stairs didn't exist, so you could be at the top of the tallest tower underwater and see clear down to the bottom. All the furniture had to be installed directly into the algae-covered walls. Roofs were only employed as a form of privacy. The bulk of Laura's chores while underwater involved scraping off barnacles which grew all over the small hut she shared with her mother. The two of them also worked as maids in the Niflhill Palace where the mother and daughter team scrubbed every inch of the glorious structure. Don't forget to get to the bottom of Princess Perivan's dresser this time, reminded Laura's mother. You forgot last week, and she complained. I did my best, argued Laura. Do better, instructed her mother harshly. Laura's webbed hands flew up to her throat, and she flailed her arms dramatically in the ocean. Mama, I think I'm drowning. You still have five hours left, Laura. Don't try to pull that on me. Laura stopped the act. It had been a lot easier to trick her mother when she was younger. The mermaid matriarch counted every second her daughter could live underwater. Teenage Laura had no choice but to swim off to Princess Perivan's room to labor over the spoiled witch mergirl's quarters. Sunlight filtered through the waves above her as Laura scraped madly at the wardrobe. Crustacean pests scuttled into the dark recesses of the room, snapping their pincers at the poor mermaid's tender fingers as she clawed at them. A dark shadow suddenly appeared over her, blocking out the sun. Laura arced her eyes up to the surface to see only the bottom of a boat. She had no reason to think so, but somehow she knew that boat was for her. Hours later, she was being introduced to the two presidents of Fantasia as Lady Laura Thinker. Laura had done her best to quickly slip into a loose-fitting dress she picked from a boutique in the marketplace on her way to the palace. The straps slid down her narrow shoulders as she awkwardly stumbled into the study over her big webbed feet in front of the two most powerful people in the Republic. Stephanie Lafleur had been around to visit with Laura a great many times. She was almost like a second mother to the mermaid and even helped raise Laura. Stephanie always exuded a warmth that made Laura feel loved. The second Laura stepped into the study, Stephanie rose to pull her into a welcoming embrace. Contrasted against her kind demeanor was the father Laura actually shared blood with. A fire stinker sat in his chair with a seat back so high it reached up to the ceiling. His skeletal hands clung to the armrests like he was afraid the chair might buck him off. Laura had only met him in person a few times and each event was more horrible and embarrassing than the last. Never once had Ephias treated her like she was anything other than some common urchin. To be reminded that his blood ran through her veins always came off as an insult. Also present in the room were Laura's three half-brothers. At 20, Runkus was the eldest. He towered over everyone else in the room. His hands clutched the hilt of his sword like he intended to strangle it to death. If looks could kill, the bitter glare Laura got from him would have sucked her soul right out on the spot. Her other two half-brothers were Eratos and Ios. One was five and the other was learning to walk. Okay, gang, let's get this show on the road, said Stephanie brightly, reading the tension in the room like she had a blindfold over her eyes. Everyone knows everybody, right? I don't need to do any introductions. Should we start off with a quick icebreaker activity? Baby Ios giggled from the floor. <laughs> well, I'm glad someone likes my jokes. 
equipped, Stephanie. How have you been, Laura? Is your mother holding up? Oh, get on with it. Growled Thinker. I'm getting there. Charged Stephanie. You can't expect the poor girl to just walk right in here and have her say, Hey, you're going on a quest. Take this chest. See ya. I don't want to be rude. Laura picked up on Stephanie's words. I'm being sent on a quest? <sighs> I was trying to ramp up to that, but I guess we'll start now. Stephanie took the chest sitting at her feet and set it on the table in front of Laura. Last night, a group of Puntian soldiers snuck into the Fantasian catacombs with the goal of stealing this. What's so special about a chest? Asked Laura. Runkus scoffed derisively in the corner. Stephanie pretended not to notice. It's what's inside the chest that's so important. Treasure? Asked Laura. Something infinitely more powerful than coins or jewelry. Stephanie set her hand on the chest. For a brief moment, she became so overwhelmed with emotion that a tear slipped out. I can't tell you what it is. Just know that you have to guard it with your life. Laura's webbed hands were on the chest before she knew what was happening. She looked up at Stephanie, seeking permission to lift it up. Go ahead, Stephanie said with a nod. It's not heavy. She was right. The small chest itself was about the size of her forearm and lightweight enough that it was easily portable. Laura could hear the artifact inside rattling around and thumping against the wooden walls. Best not to open the chest at all and let it be, suggested Stephanie. Like I said, last night, Puntian soldiers came to Fantasia looking for this artifact. Now that they know where it is, we can't allow it to be captured and fall into the wrong hands. The artifact has to be moved immediately. I'm taking my son with me on a decoy mission to take some of the heat off you because the enemy expects us to have it. My husband and his sister have already left on a separate decoy mission of their own. What they don't expect is for someone unconnected to the Sentinels to be the one with the real thing. The previously lightweight chest started to feel heavier in Laura's hands as she held it. Where am I supposed to go? Stephanie smiled broadly as she showed Laura a world map of Fabella spanning the length of the study wall. Laura had never seen a complete map of Fabella before. Her eyes widened with awestruck admiration as she marveled at the jagged landmasses of continents spanning across the wall in the perfect blue of the vast open sea. You will take a ship to Adele. It is an island located in the Holcat Ocean. Looks sort of like a burning torch. Directed Stephanie. It will be a perilous journey. I can't promise you that it will be easy. You will encounter fierce opposition. Above all, you cannot let the artifact fall into enemy hands. Get to Adele. When the mission is complete, send word by fairy. If we do this right, you will find your forever home. Laura had heard of Adele Island before. I thought the Titans obliterated Adele. They killed a few people there and took a few survivors prisoner, but the island remains. Informed Stephanie. This is where you have to go. Uncas would not remain silent any longer and made his voice known. Why her, Madam President? I don't mean to call your judgment into question. Yes, you do, but continue. Said Stephanie. You're out of your mind if you think this little mermaid can accomplish a quest like this. Runkus stepped forward. Give me the artifact. I've been training for this moment my whole life. I'm not some worthless maid. I'm a soldier. Laura doesn't have the skills to defend herself against attack. She's going to lose, and this whole operation is going to be a failure. Well, that's good that you place so much faith in your skill, because you're the one who is going to protect her. Charged Stephanie. What? What? Did I stutter? Asked Stephanie. Laura didn't like this one bit. He's a stinky goblin. She's a mermaid. She's your sister. Corrected Stephanie. Anyway, her having the chest is simple battle tactics 101. If you're ever attacked on the open sea, Laura will be able to take the artifact into the watery depths away from any attack launched from the surface. To leave me alone to get stuffed with arrows like a pincushion? Said an offended Runkus. Well, you're the one being a massive tool right now, so sorry if I don't have a lot of sympathy for you, dude. Quipped Stephanie. Rutkus turned to President Thinker, who, true to his name, labored deep in silent thought throughout the whole proceeding. 
aren't you going to say something? President LaFleur's instructions are clear, announced Ophias Thinker from his chair. Laura must undertake this quest, and you will be the one to offer her protection. My decree is final. Happy trails, concluded Stephanie with a smile. Adele had been the subject of many stories of early Fabella. If the legends were true, it was the cradle of life, the very island from which all life on Fabella originated. Laura, along with everyone else, chalked this up to some old myth and nothing more. The one part she believed was that the island had once been the site of a great catastrophe years ago, brought on by the invasion of the titans onto Fabellan soil. These were the very same titans who ruled over the rival empire of Punt, and if Stephanie was correct, as usual, the place from which all other enemies seeking the artifact would spring. There wasn't a moment to lose. Laura was only given enough time to pack her belongings, say a quick goodbye to her mother, and set off for a journey across the open sea with a brother she barely knew. Stephanie produced a sailboat strong enough to brave the waters of the Holcat Ocean amazingly fast. So fast, in fact, that Laura suspected the former president of Fantasia must have had foreknowledge about this event. Stephanie was the most skilled witch in all of Fantasia. It stood to reason that she knew how to perform a bit of fortune telling. Laura decided this boded well for their journey. Stephanie would not have sent the two siblings off on a journey that she knew would end in failure. Or would she? Stephanie LaFleur had always been somewhat of an enigma to Laura. It always seemed like she knew a lot more than she ever said about the world. Travelers from other places in the world often remarked how Fantasia was a technological utopia far ahead of its time. Many of the unique innovations Stephanie LaFleur instituted weren't known or practiced by the rest of the world. These included things like democracy, sports, theater, art, construction, and battle tactics used by the military. No one could truly say that they understood Stephanie LaFleur, least of all Laura. Runkus would be steering the sailboat while Laura was just supposed to stay out of the way. She was more than happy to do that. She had never been on a sailboat before because she could swim underwater for long stretches of time. To help Laura carry the chest, Stephanie gave her a tan pack with straps that could be fitted over the shoulders. She called it a backpack. This backpack was enchanted with magic so that it could shrink almost anything to fit inside. Food could not be reduced in size, neither could animals or people. This pack served me well during my travels, said Stephanie. I can only hope it will do the same for you. This is amazing, exclaimed Laura. Why aren't there more of these backpacks? There will be someday. Stephanie opened her mouth like she was about to say something else, but decided at the last minute to say, It's yours now. Laura slid the chest inside the pack, marveling at the way it shrank down to just three quarters of its original size. It's time for us to take off announced Runkus. Laura wanted more time to speak with Stephanie to get greater insight to the quest. Time was not on their side. They had to part, forcing Laura to take on the arduous journey to Adele without the safety of having Stephanie by her side. You don't have to be afraid, Stephanie said to Laura as they parted with a long hug. Do your best. That's all I or the Lord can ask of you. Godspeed. Laura boarded the sailboat. Runkus took the boat away from the dock and out into the open sea. Laura watched the only home she'd ever known shrink away behind her as they drifted further out into the ocean. Stephanie Lafleur stood alone, watching from the beach, still as a statue. Before long, it was just the two of them, with no land in sight and certain danger on the horizon. 
They glided along the rolling sea alone, just a brother and sister on the open ocean. Runkus methodically steered the boat over the waves, tactically rising and crashing forward, spraying salty ocean water everywhere. When his eyes weren't on the open sea in front of him, Runkus was focused on the sky, looking out for any sign of approaching enemy fighters on air chariots or dragons. Laura was quite at home with the constant bobbing and spray of the sea in her face. Runkus, on the other hand, started to look green as he manned the steering wheel of the sailboat. Greener than usual anyway for a goblin. Stephanie had given Runkus a map that magically pinpointed their position as an inky black dot in an empty piece of parchment, headed to a small island shaped like a burning torch. She said the dot was supposed to move with them and guide them to the island. Laura opened up the tan backpack and felt around for the chest inside to make sure it was still there. Just the touch of her tender, webbed hands gracing against the wooden surface of the chest filled her with a sense of accomplishment. The sea may have looked quiet, but it was a monster, a colossal obstacle steeped in mystery, an enigma nobody, even the mer people who lived in it, really knew what kind of dangers the sea held. It was a living, ever-changing tapestry. Lonely, unknown, terrifying. The sky in Fabella was always a bright blue dotted with twinkling stars during the day. Designs called constellations could be seen across the great blue void, spanning one end of the horizon to the other. Navigators in the sky and sea often used the stars to guide their way. Legend had it that these stars were the souls of departed loved ones guiding their ancestors and looking down upon them from the heavens. Laura wasn't quite sure if this was true, but it was a good sentiment. In contrast, nights and Bella were always blanketed by shimmering aurora. These brilliant, multicolored lights crossed over the field of black like waves. They offered little in the way of navigation, but were pretty to look at. A pale blue was the most common color to be seen at night. The yearly appearance of gold was always cause for delight and celebration. Fantasians even had a holiday to honor the gold aurora in the night called Golden Twilight. Everyone would gather together to play games and watch for the annual display of gilded lights. It was Laura's favorite time of the year. Sadly, she would miss the festivities in Fantasia because Golden Twilight would fall while she and Runkus were on their journey. Laura would have to miss the games, theater performances, and customary dances. The thing she'd miss most would be watching all the couples get married because Golden Twilight was the date of the most impromptu wedding ceremonies in Fabella. For the next few days, Laura slid back and forth out of the water, swimming with the sailboat as it cut a path across the vast rolling sea. While on the boat, she'd dangle her feet over the side. Runkus wouldn't let her help him sail, so she was left to her own devices most of the time. You want me to take over? Offered Delora. I'm fine. Shot back Rukas venomously. Laura was just trying to make an honest offer to help. You didn't have to bite her head off. What did I ever do to you? This was my mission to undertake alone. My time to be the hero. My time to shine. You stole it away right from under me. Accused Rukas. When people talk about this mission and... Tell their kids stories at night. I'm always going to be the sidekick. An afterthought who is quickly cast aside and forgotten while everyone remembers Lady Laura. Who am I going to be after this is done? I'm not a noble victor. Not a hero. Not a challenger. Not a legend. Not anyone. Whenever I was scared or alone. I used to lay in bed telling myself it would be okay because I was destined to be something great in the future. 
History would remember me as being something more than the president's son. Now what will become of me? You can be anyone you want to be, said Laura. Don't let the success his father has had in life dictate how you compare yourself to him. You don't have to be anyone special. Just be you. Trying to be anything more will drive you to ruin. Runke squinted at her for a moment. <laughs> That's actually kind of helpful. I'm a wealth of good advice, because I'm smarter than you, said Laura bluntly. No, you're not. I'm the oldest, so I'm the smartest, argued Runkus. Age has nothing to do with intelligence, broke in Laura. Look at Papa. He's older than both of us, and we know he's dumb as a rock. Runkus laughed heartily, harder than she'd ever heard him before. <laughs> you're right about that. For the first time in their lives, they were really getting along like a normal brother and sister. The way they could have if they weren't always forced apart by their parents. It was nice. Laura felt a kinship with Runkus that she had never experienced with another person before. The same blood ran through their veins. They were family in the truest meaning of the word, and it felt great to find that connection after so many years of being separated. After a little while of bobbing around in the ocean, Runkus turned to Laura. How much do you know about sailing? Not a lot, admitted Laura. Well, it's pretty easy once you get the hang of it. Runkus called her over to the wheel. Here, take the wheel. It's okay if we crash. You're a mermaid. You'll be fine. Me? I'll just drown. Har har, said Laura to his little joke. Runkus lashed the wheel and turned to Laura. We call the front of the boat the bow. Back is the stern, port is the left, starboard is right, up is aloft, and down is below. I shouldn't have to learn a new language just to sail, complained Laura. Runkus glared at her. I'm trying to help you. Can you just be quiet and do what I say? Why is that so hard? Sorry, continue, permitted Laura. He continued to walk her through how to set the mast to catch the wind and how to steer the boat. Laura struggled at first, but Runkus proved to be a patient teacher. He let her make a few mistakes on her own before correcting her. He remained by her until it was clear that she was comfortable. There you go, coached Runkus. You're a natural. Once he was finished, Runkus sat down on the deck for a much-needed break. Laura found she enjoyed sailing. Runkus was right. There was a bit of a learning curve, but she felt safe having him beside her. He watched her for a few hours before deciding she was fine on her own and retiring below deck to nap. For a while, it was just Laura adrift along with the current. The sun sucked heat waves off the surface of the ocean. Laura tied a strip of linen around her head to protect her from being sunburned. She the water from her canteen in one long pool. One webbed hand had to be on the wheel while another was raised up to shield her eyes from the sunlight bearing down upon her. It made her feel more like she was roasting over the fire, being boiled alive for a stew. Still, the sailboat surged forward. Laura could now clearly see the black dot gradually moving across the parchment of the map displayed in front of her. She was still on course for Adele, not too far north or south right on point. Runkus emerged from below deck hours later as night was beginning to fall. He checked their heading to see that Laura had kept them on course just fine. How long was I out? A few hours. Responded to Laura. I'll relieve you. Volunteered Runkus. Laura switched with him. They traveled further on their course before she asked him a question that had always gnawed at her. How much do you know about my birth? Runkus paused for a while to think. Not much, really. Papa has always been somewhat of a philanderer. I didn't even know you existed until you were four. I think my mother always knew. They've always had a loveless marriage. She stays with them out of a need to maintain her social status. Probably wouldn't want some mermaid laying claim to her fortune. Asserted Laura. No, probably not. Said Runkus. Laura thought back to her childhood. I think my mother loved our father. I don't think it was a one-night stand. I think it was a relationship. For whatever reason, they couldn't see a life together. You might be right about that, said Runkus. Sometimes I catch father gazing out into the sea, just lost in thought. Maybe he always thinks about your mother. It's sad, 
I'm not condoning what he's done by all means, but it has to be a tough position to be in. You, Mr. Vall, should not have to pay for his indiscretion. I wouldn't do well as a lady of the court, said Laura. Can you imagine me tripping over my webbed feet at dances? I'd rather pave my own way in life, not have everything decided for me. It's not easy, acknowledged Drunkus. I'm not allowed to marry for love. I have to marry for power. Father and mother keep bringing me these princesses from different kingdoms. All they want is to increase their fortune and power. Another child? I'm a tool. Is there someone you'd want to marry if you could? Asked Laura. Runkus hesitated for a moment before saying one name. Ionosis. Ionosis was a warrior in the Republic Air Force. Laura was prepared for her brother to say the name of a girl, not some boy. She couldn't mask her surprise. Don't breathe a word of this to anyone. I won't. Promised Laura. Runkus' old stone-cold demeanor returned as his invisible shields were once again deployed against his sister. He kept shooting her wary glances out of the corner of his eye, like he was afraid Laura might whisper his secret to the Azray water fairies bounding against the boat and it would somehow reach their father. Laura didn't like the silence and tried to think of another subject to break the tension. The weight of the pack on her shoulders reminded her of the mysterious relic hidden inside. What do you think it is? Runkus instantly knew what she was talking about. President Lafleur said that it wasn't treasure. It could be some type of powerful relic, one that grants unfathomable power. Maybe it changes you, transforms you somehow. Guessed Laura. Why do you say that? Laura dangled her webbed feet over the side of the boat. Stephanie said it would help me find my forever home. I've been going back between the sea and land my whole life. It's tough for anywhere to truly feel like home when you're constantly on the move. All I've ever really wanted was a permanent home. I, I had no idea you felt that way. Runkus looked at Laura like he was seeing her for the first time. I can't imagine going through life like that. I used to be jealous of the way that you got to lead a normal life. Is anyone's life normal? Asked Laura. Runkus took the time to think for a moment. No, I don't think that there is such a thing as a normal life. We all have our own challenges, our own demons. To say anyone just drifts through life the same as everybody else doesn't sound quite right. We're all just putting on an act for the outside world, hoping that we'll find acceptance. I think we'd all be a lot happier if more people realized that. Said Laura. Yeah. Agreed, Runkus. You're probably right. Whoa, did you just say I was right? Asked Laura. Runkus realized he'd made a mistake. Don't let it get to your head. Too late! Said Laura jovially. You just admitted I was smarter than you. No, I didn't. Protested Runkus. I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than you. Alright, alright. Get it out of your system. Grumbled Runkus. I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than you. Wait, do you see that? Runkus arced his eyes to the sky. Oh god. They found us! Laura, get down! I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than you. A flaming arrow sliced through the air, colliding with the sailboat. Laura fell silent. They were under attack. The assassins rode on griffins, a mix between an eagle and a lion, otherwise known as the most fearsome flying beasts anyone could encounter. And that included dragons. Dive! Ordered Runkus amongst the flames, eating away at the sailboat. Dive! I'm not leaving you behind! Shouted Laura at the top of her lungs. The hot sting of a blade digging into her back made Laura yelp in pain. She looked behind her to be confronted by the dreadful sight of Iapetus, the fawn titan of war. Iapetus' reputation in Fabella for being a bloodthirsty beast of dread was well-founded. Folks nicknamed him the Piercer because of his fondness for the blade, sunlight, 
rebounded off the obsidian puntian armor, hugging his broad chest and legs. Rings dangled off his horns, which curved aggressively off his head. He hovered over the brother and sister on Griffinback, with a sword dripping with Laura's blood along with a tattered tan backpack he'd cut off her shoulders. Kill them, commanded Iapetus as passively as if he were calling for someone to smash an insect. The trio of assassins in his company soared forward. One of the assassin's griffins gave a yelp in pain. A long, sinuous tentacle erupted out of the sea and seized his ankle, dragging the beast and rider down into the ocean deep. Bulge of water swelled over the boat. A gargantuan sea monster exploded from the surface, too massive to be seen whole. It's slick pink body, layered with mucus and eight legs, covered with suckers, kissing the air, rose out of the ocean. The monstrous body rose up, 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 dwarfing everyone under it. It was a kraken. Runcus shot an arrow at the leviathan's head. A huge tentacle fell on the sailboat like a tree, snapping the boat in half. Laura was launched 40 feet into the air, tumbling head over heels through the sky. The pack! Runkus called from the remains of the shattered boat. Recover the pack! Laura fell into a rapid descent directly above Iapetus. She only had a second to reach out with her webbed fingers and grab the pack off the griffin. Oh no you don't, Messy! shouted Iapetus as he seized the other end of the pack. Laura's descent was enough to pull Iapetus from his flying steed. They both crashed into the sea strewn with flaming debris from the ship and the Kraken's colossal tentacles blindly swiping at anything that moved. The cloud of dark red blood mixing with water was so thick she couldn't see. For a split second, she wondered where this blood could be coming from. The agony of the salt water seeping into the cut Iapetus gave her across the back answered that question in a hurry. Iapetus tried tugging the pack away from Laura's slimy fingers. She maintained her grip. Laura realized her best chance at getting him to let go was to drag him down into the water, ignoring the pain of water against the open wound across her back. Laura called upon all her strength to tug Iapetus down into the water. The fawn struggled against the current, flailing his arms and legs as he tried to tear the pack from the young mermaid. Laura's plan worked like a charm. Before long, Iapetus, requiring oxygen to breathe, and valuing his life more than whatever was in the pack, relinquished his hold and swam back up to the surface. The Kraken continued to smash away at the boat, reducing it to kindling. Laura remained hidden under the watery depths, watching as Iapetus was picked up by one of his assassins and taken away on the back of a griffin. She scanned the surface of the rolling waves for any sign of Runcus. Finally, Laura spotted his limp body floating on a mast. She swam up to her brother. The joy she felt at finding a weak pulse on his neck was short-lived. Laura and Runcus were now helplessly adrift in the ocean. To make matters worse, the remaining three Puntians were watching them both from above. There was nowhere to hide. The Kraken didn't show any signs of letting up on the boat. Once the Leviathan stopped, there would be nothing standing in the Puntian's way. Laura found a piece of wooden debris large enough to only hold Runcus's thick form afloat. Setting his limp body on the debris, she dragged it across the rolling ocean, clawing at the water with one hand and gripping the debris with the other. The strain this put on her, especially with the gaping wound across her back, was unbearable, but she kept at it. Blood no longer drained continuously out of her back after a while. She didn't know what this meant, but prayed it was a good thing. It was a remarkable stroke of luck that she didn't feel woozy from blood loss as she continued to surge forward with the current. Without a map to guide her, Laura had to keep paddling in the direction that she thought Adele was located. Arrows zoomed past her as the Puntian assassins took shots on her and Runkus from above. Iapetus sat astride his griffin, proudly smirking ear to ear and calling on his forces to continue fire. 
Heavy, bright yellow fog rolled in over Laura and her brother. It was so dense, she couldn't see the stars in the bright blue sky, just a massive blanket of strange yellow fog. The fog hovered over the surface of the rolling waves as a thick, dark cloud. The arrows stopped splashing down on the siblings. Where are they? Called out Iapetus. Find them! Laura realized he couldn't see her through the dense fog, and she continued swimming forward. All Laura could see was a vast stretch of ocean against a thick cloud of fog. It filled every part of her vision, no matter where she looked. Endless, massive, glittering, and incredible. It felt like she swam against the punishing waves for hours before Runkus stirred on the floating debris. What happened? Laura told him all about the fight she had with Iapetus over the pack and her journey thus far. Runkus listened to her without interrupting. When she was finally finished, he said, You mentioned that you'd been struck across the back by Iapetus' sword. Yes. Confirmed Laura. I don't see a wound. Revealed Runkus. Laura stopped swimming with a start. She hadn't felt the sting of a gash across her back for some time, but she assumed it was still there. Wounds like that didn't just normally disappear. Because this was located on her back, she was unable to know that it had been sealed. How is that possible? Wondered Laura. Runkus looked up at the heavy yellow fog around them. This, coupled with the evidence that Laura's wound had somehow healed itself, left one conclusion. This is magic. Laura didn't know much about magic, but she believed him. Who could be casting this around us? I thought we were alone. Runka scanned the blanket of yellow around them. I don't think we're alone. There was no sign that anyone else, witch or wizard, existed around them. Laura detected no sound of someone moving through the water. The most that she could hear was a barely audible hum. She had no choice but to continue swimming hoping the sibling's invisible guardian angel would continue to watch over them. Nighttime was the worst. Laura struggled to fight against the bitter chill of the water as intense drowsiness overtook her. Her throat burned with thirst. It was ironic that she was surrounded by dark water, and yet she felt like she was trapped in the desert. The fog blocked out all light from the aurora, so Laura blindly pulled herself through the near pitch blackness all night. All night, that is, until a line of free-floating yellow balls of light appeared on the surface. Laura drew closer to these balls out of curiosity. Each time she approached one, it would vanish and be replaced by a new flickering ball of daffodil yellow light the size of her fist. The sun began to rise. The fog dissipated slowly, revealing the unmistakable shape of land in the distance. It had to be Adele. As they swam closer, she could see the palm trees and a white stretch of sandy beach. Laura and Runkus wandered around the beach after they made landfall. There was no sign of a magic yellow light around them. Laura was so exhausted she flopped on the white sandy beach and lay there for a moment like a dead fish. It was hard to know where to start. Footing was treacherous on the narrow strip of greasy stones layered with green algae, the wash of color presented by all the flowers in full bloom around every corner was a feast on the eyes. Laura wasn't sure what she expected to find in this island. She had thought that someone trustworthy would be there to meet them and direct the two of them on what to do with the chest, but there didn't appear to be any people on the island at all. Our mission was to get to the island. Runkus shot Laura a glance out of the corner of his eye. Now what? My thoughts exactly. Echoed Laura. Let's look around. Suggested Runkus. There has to be something somewhere that can help us. So they set out, aimlessly exploring the island and hoping against hope to find help. A short journey north, Laura spied a large hill rising out of the wild jungle. Upon the hill rose many mighty mushrooms and flowers, taller than all the others. Laura and Runkus made it their goal to get to the top of this hill from where they could get a better glimpse of the layout of the island and find shelter. When they finally made it, Laura was struck by the incredible beauty of this place that she had the good fortune to find. It was impossible not to feel a little weak when gazing with wonderment at the tropical vista before them. They could see tremendous flowers, tall as trees and colossal looming cliffs. There was even a rock formation shaped like a giant hand. 
Look! Runkus's arm shot out from his side. Laura followed his outstretched finger to indeed see a group of merfolk bobbing around in the shallow shoreline of the beach. They left the safety of the hill to speed down to the beach. When the merfolk saw the siblings coming, the group of seven amphibious tribe members couldn't be more terrified. They started screeching in horror at the siblings in foreign dialect. A few of them dove into the water out of fear. Wait! called Laura in an effort to communicate with them. She resorted to using the merfolk language of subbish. This was a series of clicks and fin movements only a person was capable of performing. It was a unique cultural tradition passed down through the generations. She hoped the merfolk of Adele would recognize it. Fortunately, this was the case. A merman tribal warrior with slicked back, wriggling squid tentacles for hair took notice of Laura's use of subbish and stopped to communicate with her. Laura engaged in a quick back and forth with the merman who identified himself as Serap of the Polycarp tribe. She then in turn translated the discussion to Runkus. Is there anyone who lives here now? Laura translated Runkus's question to Serap using subbish. Serap shook his head. His fins flexed themselves like a fan as he formed his reply. He does not know of anybody. Laura translated for Runkus. Runkus tried again. Is there any safe place we can stash the chest? The cycle began again and Laura came back with the response. Nowhere in Adele is safe. Let's bury it, suggested Runkus. If we're caught with the relic here on land by Iapetus and his assassins, they'll kill us. If we can separate ourselves from the relic, we may be able to survive. They'll have to keep us alive if they hope to find it. Laura agreed and let Serap dive back down to his tribe beneath the water's turquoise surface. Runkus wandered around for a bit and found a unique tree struck by lightning, causing its bark to be charred and contort into a twisted form. Without any tools, Laura had to get down and dig with her webbed hands into the foot of this tree. Runkus joined her, their hands both clawed at the rich soil, heaving entire armfuls of dirt to make a hole. A few moments into the task, Laura suddenly doubled over in stabbing pain as agony tore into her back. It felt like she'd been freshly struck with a sword. She looked around through teary, watery eyes, wondering if Iapetus had found them, but didn't see anybody. Runkus rushed over to her with alert. It's deep. Hold on. I need to dress the wound. What's going on? Cried Laura in horror. I thought the wound had healed itself. Not anymore. The surprise on Runkus's face was palpable. I wonder if... No, just hang on. Laura felt the crippling pain as Runkus scrambled to whip up an ointment using a set of berries and natural leaves he found around the site. They taught us how to make a healing ointment in military training. He explained. This is going to hurt, but if we leave it on, it should prevent the wound from getting infected. It hurts so much! Cried Laura. I know, I know, just hang in there. I've got you, Laura. Do you hear me? I've got you. Those were the last words Laura heard before the crippling pain was too much and she fell unconscious.
Laura awoke in the middle of the night to find Runkus seated by the fire. The pain of the wound across her back had mostly subsided, replaced by a cool moistness of heavy layers of ointment across her blubbery back. The feeling of wet sand under her chest and water rushing over her with each crashing wave into the shore told her she was on a beach. Runkus noticed that she was awake. How are you feeling? I'm fine. Responded Laura. Thank you. Runka stared at the fire, lost in thought. I finished burying the relic. It's safe. There's something you're not telling me. Laura gazed up at her older brother who seemed to be lost in a trance. Runka swallowed hard. I was hurt on the boat, too. I remember being on the edge of death. Then relief washing over me. I didn't tell you earlier because I thought I'd been magically healed like you. Maybe we both were. I guess the magic used to heal us isn't permanent. If your wound came back, then that means mine will too. What happened to you? Laura couldn't hide the dread in her voice. Tears slid down Rigus's cheeks. Before he could answer, the hideous, tall form of a fawn appeared in the firelight. Very foolish of you to start that fire, boy. Iapetus sneered from the darkness as the two assassins in his company loaded their crossbows right at the siblings. We might never have found you otherwise. Now, where is the artifact? We're never going to tell you, shouted Runkus. Iapetus fumed, his face twisted in fury as he turned to his troop. Laura was dragged to her feet and thrown beside Runkus like a piece of trash by the two soldiers as Iapetus casually seated himself by the fire. The two Puntian soldiers bound the siblings' wrists behind them with rope. Then, they sat down by the fire to receive more orders. Iapetus stooped down by the fire to light a torch. The fawn then thundered into the darkness of the jungle with his torch bobbing the entire way. Laura and Runkus lay on the sand for what felt like hours in total silence. Little crustaceans and insects made their way out of the sand and began crawling all over their bodies. Laura writhed around in agony as thousands of little feet touched the tender wound on her back. She could feel them burring into her flesh and pinching her insides. It was the worst pain she'd ever felt. I tracked their prints back a ways into the jungle. There was a site with freshly upturned soil. A pang of terror seized Laura's heart. Just as she suspected, a dirty pack fell right in front of her eyes. Laura and Runkus lay flat on the ground, overcome with terror. The rope binding her wrists behind her rubbed against her fragile skin as Laura fought to free herself. Iopatus turned a blind eye toward her as he dipped a hand into the pack and pulled out the chest. After trying to tear the lock off with his own brute strength, he resorted to tearing off the helmet over his head and hammering it into the chest. It took several good whacks, but the force of the bronze against metal eventually yielded success. The lock fell to the sand with a disappointing thud. Iapetus greedily flipped open the chest lid. Now, let's see what Mistress Tefnet wants so badly. Laura and Runkus both raised their heads up from the sand. They too couldn't fight their curiosity about what the relic could be. What the- The flabbergasted look on Iapetus' face was palpable, even in dawn's early light. What is this? Iapetus pulled out a disc cut in two. At least that's what it looked like to Laura. The material for said disc appeared to be made out of something harder than stone, a metal that she'd never seen before. Early morning sunlight rebounded off the dusty gray exterior. Whatever this broken disc had been before, it looked more like trash. Iapetus threw the broken disc aside and spun around to face the siblings. What did you two do to it? Nothing! cried Laura. Liar! howled Iapetus. You broke this relic on purpose! Admit it! Laura didn't know how the relic got broken. Maybe it had happened in the attack. 
She'd never been inside the chest. Perhaps Runkus broke it when he was burying the pack. She turned to Runkus, hoping for some kind of nonverbal confirmation this was the case, only to be confronted by a dreadful sight. Burns spread all over Runkus's skin. His right wrist eroded into a charred black limb. Runkus groaned in agony as one of his eyes fell out of its socket. Laura's mind flashed back to what he'd said about his injuries before they were captured by Iapetus. The serious injuries he'd sustained in the attack on the boat were finally making their horrifying return as the magic keeping him whole lost its effectiveness. Runkus's right wrist had eroded into a blackened stump so much that he was able to snap his hand clean off, freeing himself from his restraints. He then reached up with his gradually blackening left hand to rip the sword away from the nearby soldier scabbard. The blade of the stolen sword flew through the air, cutting down one soldier, but more importantly, also slicing off the rope binding Laura's hands together. Laura took a cue from her brother and quickly reached up to tug a dagger away from the last remaining Pentian soldier and sliced open his throat. Runkus rushed forward with a cry. He swung his sword at Iapetus, who blocked the blow with his own sword. Laura picked up a bow from one of the fallen soldiers and loaded it with an arrow. She took aim and let the arrow fly. Runkus moved his head at just the right second, leaving the arrow just enough of a gap to fly through the air and tear across Iapetus's neck. Iapetus screamed in pain as blood drained out of his neck. He backed away from them in fright. A griffin landed behind him. Iapetus leapt atop the flying animal's back before Laura could fire off another arrow. She could only watch as he fled into the sky and out of sight. Runkus crumpled to the ground. Laura rushed to his side. Runkus looked up at her with his one remaining good eye. He'd been burnt beyond all recognition. He couldn't even speak. Laura sobbed over him. It's okay. You were a hero today. I'll make sure you're remembered. Runkus looked up into the early morning sky, still shimmering with waning golden lights. His eye slowly closed, never to open again. Laura picked up the broken disc from the beach. She still couldn't make heads or tails about what was happening. Stephanie said that she was supposed to find her forever home here on the island, but it didn't feel like home. It felt like a nightmare. A high popping sound drew Laura's attention behind her. She spun around to find the very last person she expected to see. Right before her was a girl. She had to be in her late teens, maybe early twenties. A full head of curly brown hair fell over her narrow shoulders, layered with black padding. Her head was the only part of her body not covered by a strange black armor, completely out of place and out of time. She wore a pair of mismatched boots, and there was dry blood on her cheek. Still, despite the fact that she looked like she'd been through hell and back, the girl wore a smile brighter than the sun. Hey! She said brightly. Her midnight blue eyes landed on the broken disc in Laura's hands. Looks like you've got something for me. It was Stephanie Lafleur, but much younger than the legendary heroine and president Laura knew. The Stephanie back in Fantasia was in her late 30s. The one before her now was 10 to 15 years younger. Do you know me? Asked Laura, unsure if the former president had taken some kind of youth potion. Can't say I do. Stephanie said. Should we know each other? I don't understand. Laura struggled to speak. You can't be who I think you are. Depends on who you think I am, responded Stephanie. Can I get that disc from you, please? I don't mean to be totally rude and all, but it's kind of important. It's broken. Laura handed over the two halves of the disc. I don't know how it happened. I'm so sorry. There's nothing to be sorry about. Stephanie took the pieces of the disc and slid them into her tan backpack around her narrow shoulders, the same one Laura had been wearing over her own shoulders, but less worn and dusty. Probably wasn't anything you did. It's okay, though. 
I got a guy who will fix it right up. Wish I could stay and chat, but I gotta be a little judicious about how often I travel. My mom's been on me about keeping a schedule. She thinks I'm going to wind up being a 90-year-old junior in high school or whatever. Don't you have something for me? Asked Laura. Now it was Stephanie's turn to be confused. What, like candy? I got this chocolate bar, but it's got almonds in it. No, I was supposed to be able to find my forever home. Argued Laura. Home is wherever you make it, said Stephanie. Nothing in Fabella can just give you a home and erase all your problems. At least, none that I know of. If you find something like that, be sure to hit me up. Laura reflected on Stephanie's words for a moment. Where are you going? More of a when than a where, if you get my drift. Stephanie extracted a device from her pack. Laura recognized it as the disc that had been in the chest, but it wasn't broken. It was whole, a gorgeous round device, harder than stone, the small red circle in the middle. Can you take a step back, please? Requested Stephanie. I'm not supposed to take hitchhikers. Laura stumbled backwards. Stephanie leapt into the air and mashed her fist down on the device. Laura watched in astonishment as a purple bubble materialized over the teenage Stephanie. She was gone just as quickly as she had come. Laura felt around the empty space where Stephanie had disappeared. There was no sign of her. Something the younger Stephanie said stuck with Laura. Home was where she made it. In that moment, she knew she wasn't going back to Fantasia. This island would be her home from now on, and Rukus's memory would be interred in the land for all time. And that will do it for us on this episode. If you like this episode, I have good news for you. You can subscribe to get more episodes right in your feed. There's a lot more at www.archivesoffabella.com, including an ever-growing encyclopedia of creatures and characters in the Fabella universe. Please support this ongoing project by subscribing to Archives of Fabella on Patreon for exclusive content including audiobook segments, notes, polls, and so much more. Books are available on Amazon in ebook and paperback for you to delve further into the series. Archives of Favela is created, hosted, and edited by Dylan Foley with music by Garrett Ferris and audio blocks. Laura was played by Katie Stolp. Check out some of Katie's art at Katie Stolp. That's K-D-S-T-O-L-P-E dot Weebly dot com. All other voices were performed by Dylan Foley. As always, look outside of what is possible and think about what might be.